No one likes to feel stuck, especially by your cloud. But the IBM cloud is the most open and secure public cloud for business. It can manage all your apps and data anywhere. Smart loves problems. IBM, let's put smart to work. Visit ibm.com slash flexible. Welcome to The Sporting Life with Jeremy Schapp. Over the next hour, Ryan McGee describes what it was like being at the Daytona 500, where driver Ryan Newman survived a horrific crash. I was standing in victory lane, and as they went by, his car was airborne. And I saw it land and was hit by the car of Corey LaJoy, no fault of his own. And what concerned me and concerned anyone who knows anything about auto racing is that Corey LaJoy's car hit Ryan Newman's car right in the window net. Plus, Adam Carolla discusses Willie T. Ribs, the first African African-American to compete in the Indianapolis 500. He grew up on kind of a farm that had like mini bikes and go-karts and trucks and stuff. He could slide around the dirt roads of the farm, but mostly it was in him. He just wanted to go fast. Also, the son of legendary basketball coach Jerry Tarkanian reflects on his father's incredible legacy. The thing that most people don't know about my father was that he was just a really great people person, and he was that way with people across all different spectrums of life. He was able to relate with and motivate and bring together the poor inner city black kids that were dominating college basketball like no other coach. This is The Sporting Life on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app. Here's Jeremy Schapp. Welcome to another edition of The Sporting Life. Later in the show, we'll be speaking with Adam Carolla about his new documentary about the legendary and groundbreaking racer, Willie T. Ribs. We'll also be speaking to Danny Tarkanian about his father, Jerry Tarkanian, a member of the Basketball Hall of Fame. But first, we're joined by one of our favorite and most frequent guests, the eloquent and the talented, the gifted Ryan McGee. Ryan, thank you for being with us. I cannot wait to hear Adam Carolla talk about Willie T. Ribs. Oh, it's 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 good stuff. We we already recorded that. And uh, have you had a chance to see the documentary, Uppity, the Willie T. Ribs story? I have, and I know Willie. It's pretty good. Yeah, I've, I've covered Willie forever, and um, I'm in greatest cowboy hat. In motorsports history, maybe second only to Smokey Eunuch. I'm sorry, did you say Smokey Eunuch? Is that a real name? I, I Should I be familiar with Smokey Eunuch? How much time do we have? He's <laughs> maybe the greatest American-born mechanic of all time, race mechanic. I should know. Yeah. I apologize. I apologize, but that's why you're on the show, because it has been um, it has been an interesting week, if that's the way to put it, in your world. Of course, the Daytona 500, most of the race delayed until Monday, and then that horrific crash involving Ryan Newman on the final lap. You were at the hospital at Halifax Medical Center, Daytona. The news was good. What was your gut instinct when you saw the crash from your perspective? Well, I was standing in victory lane uh, at Daytona. We were waiting uh, for the end of the race, and it's the worst place at the Daytona National Speedway to watch the race because you only have this small window where you can see the cars come down the front stretch just as they've passed underneath the starter stand. And as they went by, his car was airborne. And I saw it land uh, and, and was hit by the car of Corey LaJoy, no fault of his own. And what concerned me and concerned anyone who knows anything about auto racing is that Corey LaJoy's car hit Ryan Newman's car right in the window net. And so for, for the folks that don't know, that's basically the only soft spot on the race car. That, that's where the driver's head is. Uh, there's no window there. It's just a, it's just a net. And so that was the concern was that the impact was right there 
where Ryan Newman's head would have been while he was hanging upside down. And, uh, that's, that's what's frightened me. It's what frightened everyone. And, um, I mean, there, I was standing in victory lane with a lot of old school hardened racers and they all had that look on their face. Like we're not saying a word until we know something. And thankfully two hours later, uh, we had much better news than we expected. We're speaking to Ryan McGee about Ryan Newman and the crash that occurred Monday at the Daytona 500, a race won for the second consecutive year by Denny Hamlin. Ryan, there was a time, of course, when crashes such as what we saw on Monday were not uncommon. And sadly, of course, deaths on the track were not all that uncommon. But that's changed over the years. What does it say about the state of NASCAR that this was such a shock to the system this week? What it says is we've become spoiled. We have. We've become safety spoiled in the sport because uh, no driver has has died in a, a crash in the NASCAR's top three national series. That's the Cup Series. It's Xfinity. It's also the Truck Series, the three national series. No one has died in a race car in those series since February 18th, 2001. And that was Dale Earnhardt. And, uh, you know, I almost quit covering the sport um, in the late 90s, early 2000s, because, Jeremy, it got to the point where every time I went to the racetrack, uh, I was convinced I would be covering a funeral the next week. I mean, I was there for nearly a half a dozen driver deaths. I was there for a half a dozen fan deaths. Um, and then when I wasn't there in person, I was still having to write and produce the obituaries for the likes of Adam Petty and Kenny Irwin and Tony Roper. And it wasn't just NASCAR. It was also open wheel racing. It was drag racing. It was, um, and it just got to the point where I'm like, what, what are we doing? And I talked to my friends who had covered the sports, the, the sport in the sixties. And they said, this is as bad as it's ever been. And unfortunately what it took was for Superman to die, which is what happened when Dale Earnhardt died. Um, you know, these other guys, these are young guys, right? Whatever. These are inexperienced guys. That's how they could kind of write that off. And then once Dale Earnhardt was gone, the toughest of the tough, a guy who raced with a broken collarbone, a race with, you know, a cracked skull, all these things back in the day, when, when Dale Earnhardt Sr. was gone, it forced everyone to mandate safety devices that already existed, head and neck restraints and closed face helmets and custom built seats and, the way the roll bar is set in uh, safer barrier soft walls that we saw Ryan Newman hit, all of, all of the things that were implemented in the weeks after Dale Earnhardt's death are what saved Ryan Newman on Monday night. Is it problematic, Ryan, in any way when you see something like that and then you see Ryan Newman fortunately walk away from it, uh, if not unscathed, seemingly okay, let's put it that way, that it creates a false sense of of complete confidence in the safety of this sport, which, of course, it isn't and can never be. That's what was so fascinating, and I use that word now because I'm looking back on it, fortunately. That's what was so fascinating about that experience on Monday night and Tuesday in Daytona because, again, for someone who covered all those deaths and who who still – I'm still covering deaths in, in other forms of motorsports, but for someone who's dealt with that, it was interesting watching – the crew members in the media core and the, the track staffers who weren't around in 2001. Because those of us of a certain age all had that look on our face and it was muscle memory. We all kind of fell back onto, all right, this is, now I remember how to react to this and how to handle this. And then you saw an entire generation who did not. And this was my column that I wrote for ESPN.com, which was, you know, we become, you know, kind of safety spoiled. And this was a reminder. Because, yes, he literally walked away out of the hospital on Wednesday, 
but it is a reminder that you can make this as safe as you possibly can, but at the end of the day, it will never be truly safe. And and anyone who needed a wake-up call on that, I believe they got it on Monday night. Is there anything to be said, or is this just the perspective of someone who doesn't follow the sport closely, who's only covered maybe one race ever that I can remember, uh, and didn't grow up with it, that if the danger isn't there, is some of the appeal gone? I mean, I know that's that's an old horse that's that's taken out and discussed a lot, but but is it true? It is true, and and there were actually in the in these recent years there were columns written. Has NASCAR become too safe? And this was a debate that I've had with people as NASCAR's popularity waned and as the television ratings went down. One of the questions that was asked, and it's a long list of reasons for, for why that's happened, but one of the questions that I've been asked a lot is, is it too safe? Is that danger element gone? But, um, you know, there's always going to be the people who quote Hemingway, right? There are only, what, three true sports. What, mountain climbing, bull bullfighting, and uh, auto racing. He said everything else is just a game. And that's fine. But, uh, but I also would like to quote another pretty good writer, Bruce Springsteen, uh, who said, I like my heroes my gods grizzled and alive and uh that's kind of how i feel you know what bruce said was he said uh, going out in a blaze of glory is uh bull bleep and that's uh that's kind of where i am with it i've been to enough funerals of race car drivers that i will uh i'll trade a little bit of uh of danger to keep those guys around and tell me the stories in person as opposed to me having to uh dig them out of my memory it's always a pleasure ryan thanks so much for sharing your thoughts yes sir jeremy shep This is The Sporting Life on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app. Willie T. Ribbs has often been called the Jackie Robinson of motorsports. In 1991, he became the first African-American driver to qualify for the Indy 500. His life and career are the subjects of a new documentary co-directed by Adam Carolla, Uppity, the Willie T. Ribbs story and Adam Carolla joins us now. Adam, thank you for being with us. Thanks for having me. Adam, uh, it's a fascinating story, and I I come away from watching the documentary with one thought. Why don't more people know Willie T. Ribbs' story? How how has it been obscured over the course of the last 30 years? I don't know. I'm not sure how the zeitgeist works. I don't know. You know, we all know who Monica Lewinsky is, and we don't know who Willie T. Ribbs is, and that's just kind of the that's the cycle. That's the news cycle. But that's the reason you make a documentary. Exactly. And, and this is his story from from the beginning. There's so many twists and turns. And the climax of the story, I hope I'm not giving anything away, is the qualification process in May 1991 for the Indy 500. But it was a struggle. By that point, he'd really been a professional racer for 14 years. And there's so many um, people whose paths he crosses in that time people like bruce jenner and don king and bill cosby there's so much the story as a storyteller how did you try to maintain focus here we discussed you know having bill cosby and having caitlin jenner in like <laughs> would that be a distraction but my motto with these docs is the story is the story we're not really allowed to write the story we have to tell the story these are events that already existed. Uh, Caitlyn Jenner plays a part in a chapter of Willie's life, and so does Don King. And 
so does Bill Cosby. Bill Cosby plays a, a major part in Willie T's racing career. And, you know, documentaries aren't a popularity contest. It's not like, well, we don't like that guy now, so it can't be in the documentary. Uh, I mean, ha- hell, half the documentaries are about serial killers. So I don't think it's about how popular you are with the neighbors. Uh, so my feeling is, is let's get Willie to tell a story, however it happened. That's how we're going to document it. And it's our job to craft it in a, in a very compelling way, but it's not our job to decide who's in and who's out. We're speaking with Adam Carolla. He's the co-director of the new documentary. You can see it on Netflix, Uppity, the Willie T. Rib story. And, um, You've directed documentaries about racing before five years ago, the Paul Newman story, and Paul Newman is part of this story as well. How did Willie T. Ribbs become a driver in the first place? His dad did a little amateur racing. He was he grew up on kind of a farm that had like mini bikes and go karts and trucks and stuff. He could slide around the dirt roads of the farm, but mostly it was in him. Uh, he just wanted to go fast. I, most race car drivers just have that in them. If you talk to any uh, rock and roll drummer, they'll tell you the same thing. They just uh, when they were five, they're banging on pots and pans. It's in them. Comedians have something that's in them. Drummers have something that's in them. Uh, race car drivers have something that's in them. Uh, and it was in him. And I, you know, I don't know how. You know, maybe. God is the one who sorts that stuff out, but it was in him, and he 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 had some access to it because his dad did a little bit of amateur racing, and, and he grew up with a neighbor who did racing as well. And then when he's when he's in his early twenties, he goes off to England to compete in Formula Four in 1977. What happens when Willie goes to England? He may have gone. God, he may have been 19. Even he may have been late uh late late teens instead of going to college he goes off to race uh, formula ford in england he wins which is kind of a big deal which is if you win formula ford you know there's steps it's, it's it's you know formula ford maybe it's formula v maybe um it goes to formula atlantic then maybe maybe it goes to f1 or maybe it goes from Formula Atlantic to Indy and then F1 or what have you. But it's a stepping stone. And if you win Formula Ford in England, it's kind of like being the highest recruited basketball player at a, at a high school. You know, it doesn't, it doesn't mean you're going to be a pro, but it, it, it certainly looks good. And uh, he came back to the United States and nobody had any interest in him racing. And unlike basketball, racing takes money and it takes sponsorship. And if you don't have the equipment, you don't have the sponsorship, you don't have the money, you can't be competitive. It doesn't matter how poor LeBron James was when he was 17 or Kobe Bryant was when they were 17. They're still going to the show uh, because all you need is a pair of trunks and 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 a jersey. And in, in automotive racing, you need a lot of money. And if you're not getting sponsorship, you're not you're not racing. And he couldn't get sponsorship. He has the success in Formula Ford, not Formula Four, as I said. There is a Formula Four now and a Formula Three, but Formula Ford. Uh, and he comes back and he can't get opportunities. One of the amazing things about his story is that 
He raced everything. Every He would drive anything, anywhere to get a chance to pursue his dream. Um, one thing he certainly demonstrated over the years, which not a lot of guys have done, is proficiency with basically anything on four wheels. Yeah, and there's been some guys that have driven in, in you know, different series. And, you know, for the most part, if a guy can drive, a guy can drive. But they don't normally hop from Formula Atlantic to the Trans Am series, which is a much, you know, totally different beast. Uh, the cars are, you know, one is a little open wheel sort of momentum car. The other is just a big brute. Um, I've driven some of Newman's Trans Am cars, and I can tell you they're just big, beefy brutes, and um, and they're heavy, and they slide around, and that's just a different animal altogether. But he didn't have the luxury of having a choice. He, he had to take what he could get. The thing that stands out as well from this documentary, Adam, is that he's a big personality. I mean, he he's a compelling character. He has a remarkable way with words. It must have been fun for you guys just to hear him tell his story because he does so in such a compelling, uh, narrative-driven way. Yeah, when we went to work on the Newman doc, uh, Winning the Racing Life of Paul Newman, we went to work on that doc. We went to interview Willie because he was a part of Newman's world as well. Uh, as soon as we got done interviewing Willie, uh, we just announced this guy's a soundbite machine and he's going to be our next doc. That was our, our humble take on, on Willie. So, you know, when you make a doc, we made um, the 24-Hour War, which is Ford v. Ferrari, the documentary. And then we made the uh, Carol Shelby doc, Shelby American, which is because we were making the Ford versus Ferrari doc. We, of course, we had a big chapter on, on Shelby in there. And so, like, one doc begat the next. So once we were three-quarters of the way done with Newman, we just started working on uppity because we we knew this guy was, was a compelling his story was compelling but he was compelling himself but in 1985 when he's about 30 years old it looks like he's going to become the first african-american to qualify at the indy 500 to race in the indy 500 but it becomes a fiasco what what happened you know i'm not 100 percent sure what the actual truth is but from Willie's telling of it and other people telling of it, he got a race team that didn't want him there. And they may not have wanted him there because of his personality, may not want him there because of the color of his skin. But they did not give him a car that was safe at that speed. And a lot of it, Indy, it's all about the car, it's all about the setup, and it's all about the speed. And, you know, for those people who are, who are casual uh, fans of racing, at 200 miles an hour, you have no idea how big downforce plays and aerodynamics plays and just how to dial the car in to get around that corner at 200 miles an hour. Because if it's not dialed in, it's, it's going to go off the track and you can, you can easily die. Willie was having difficulty the car wasn't set up. His people, the people, the engineers weren't talking to him. They weren't helping him. They weren't guiding him. You really need input from your team in those cars. 
and he just wasn't getting it. And he was really thought he was going to kill himself. Uh, he didn't feel safe in the car, and the car wasn't set up correctly. So he got out, and he walked away. And uh, then he was kind of known as a chicken. You know, he was humiliated. They, they were like, Willie can't handle the speed. You know, the Trans Am cars are fast, but they're not going 205 miles an hour. The circuit in which he had had success already. And it happened very suddenly, the 85 thing. He he meets Don King in Las Vegas. Don King says it's going to happen. He gets sponsorship from Miller Beer, but he was not comfortable with the setup of his car, and the team felt it was unsafe. He walked away. At that point, as you say, it was, it was humiliating, although Willie uh, had so much self-confidence that probably was not punctured, but where does he think he's going to go from there? He goes back into Trans Am, and he also wanted to get into F1. He uh, would have been the first black driver in F1, and he, he went on to test in F1 and, and, and proved to be real quick in an F1 car, but the politics sort of came into play once again, and uh he didn't get a ride at one. And Bernie Ecclestone in your documentary says he would have loved to have had uh, a black champion, world champion at that time, but it was something he, he couldn't quite make happen. Of course, now Lewis Hamilton, uh, who is a black Englishman, is the best driver in the world, the best is certainly open wheel, and has been a world champion. What is it now? Six times? I've, I've kind of lost track. Uh, but... Willie T. Ribs is testing Formula One cars in Portugal in 1986, but he doesn't get the shot again. No, he doesn't get the shot again. And, um, you know, uh, again, it's a lot of politics, you know, discrimination, I guess. You know, that he was racing. The, the team he was trying out for was an Italian team, and they wanted an Italian driver, or at least someone who looked Italian. And they, uh, they once again sent Willie packing. And so we had to go back and see if we could get another Trans Am ride. We're speaking with Adam Carolla, the co-director of the new documentary, Uppity, the Willie T. Ribs story. And as we said earlier, you know, your film builds to a climax with the 1991 Indianapolis 500. And at that time, six years after what happened uh, at the 85 race where he decided he could not compete safely, he he is struggling to qualify. Um, his car, he doesn't have the resources, although Bill Cosby is partially financing him. He doesn't have the resources to compete with the big teams. They're operating on a shoestring budget. They are full of hope anyway that they're somehow going to get this done, but it's not working out until pretty much at the 11th hour, uh, Willie T is told that his team has a secret weapon. And this somehow, uh, makes the difference. Could you tell us that story, Adam? Yeah. He's blowing up engines. They're out of money. Cosby. Cosby got over his skis. Cosby said, I'm going to sponsor you, but don't worry. I'm in with Coke and Jell-O and you know, Kodak and everybody, and I'm going to just go to them and tell them to sponsor you. But if they don't, I'll sponsor you. But I don't think he thought he was really going to have to sponsor it. 
And uh, sure enough, all the major sponsors that Bill was in business with wouldn't cough up, wouldn't fork over any money. So now Bill was on the hook. So Bill said, "All right, you got two hundred fifty grand, and two hundred fifty grand is is not enough to feel the car really competently. You need backup cars and backup engines, and blah blah blah." They ended up blowing up engines, and it got down to the last day of qualifying, and one of the last qualifying qualifiers of the of the week qualifying week, and they're pretty much going out at, you know, five in the afternoon, and that was it. Uh, they were on the bubble, and Willie was not able to find speed, and at some point, the race engineer said, you know, I have these magical tires, and uh, we're going to put them on, and, I, and it gave Willie somehow the confidence. I mean, he didn't say magical tires, but, a, you know, super set of super tires, and uh, it just gave Willie that extra that he needed. Adam, uh, Willie T. Ribs qualifying and racing in the Indy 500 in 1991. You're a historian of the sport. What is what is the significance ultimately of that achievement? Well, I, I think it was a time in where every other sport was integrated, but racing wasn't integrated, and it was really the last of of a. You know, it, it, it was like a, a, a holdover from the the country as it was. You know, that everything else, music and basketball and football and all the sports and even politics and, and every other field was sort of the country as it as it is now. But but racing was like the country as it was, like in the fifties, you know, or the sixties. And so it was really the last thing. I mean, I, I guess if you think about it, you know, tennis and, 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 and every other, even, even the sort of fringe sports, and, and again, I don't know, the culture and politics and everything else had been like fully integrated, but racing wasn't. Racing was still just an all-white sport. And uh, so to me, uh, uh, sort of, it had the global impact of it was is it was the last domino to fall in terms of of integration. Adam Carolla's new documentary, which he co-directed with Nate Adams, is Uppity: The Willie T. Rib Story. You can download it at chassis c h a s s y dot com. You can also order the Blu Ray with all the extras. Also on the website, Adam's other motorsports documentaries, such as the 24-Hour War, are available. Adam, it's a pleasure having you back on The Sporting Life to talk about this fascinating film. Thank you for being with us. Thanks for taking the time. This is The Sporting Life on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app. Jerry Tarkanian wasn't just one of the best coaches in college basketball. He was one of the most compelling and he was certainly one of the most controversial. He eventually would be selected for the Basketball Hall of Fame. He died five years ago, and now a new book has been written, Rebel with a Cause, the true story of Jerry Tarkanian, written by his son Danny, who also, of course, played for his father at UNLV. Danny, thanks so much for being with us here. 
Well, thank you for having me on. I was not only played for him, I was his ball boy. I was an assistant coach for him, and I was actually his attorney for much of the NC Tway matter. So I thought that I would be the person with the best information and uh, that could write this book. I can't imagine that anyone else would be better. But but let's start (laughs) with uh, the title, Rebel with a Cause, the true story of Jerry Tarkanian. That suggests that there is a false story or a false narrative about your father out there. What is that narrative? Well, I mean, you follow my father's career and interviewed him on a few occasions. You understand that there was a lot of uh, stories written about him, and uh, most of it uh, wasn't true. And for people, the people that actually interviewed him got to know the program, got to know the players. You had a pretty good understanding of what truly was was going on. But there were so many other stories that were written just perception and uh, maybe people's impression from what they heard. What I did was my mother had scrapbooks from all of my father's uh, seasons that he coached. So I used those scrapbooks to go back and go through all the seasons. I have all the documentation from the NC2A, not only uh, – court documents, but their investigation notes and so forth. So I was able to put together a factual basis on all that. As I mentioned, I lived and breathed and was a part of much of my father's career in a number of other areas. And then I heard the different stories my father had told, funny stories of his recruiting um, instance uh, stories and other coaches' recruiting stories. I try to put all that in the book. I think the, the readers will find that really interesting and funny. And then I also wanted to get my father's sense of humor out there. He was really a quick-witted person, had some great one-liners. Some of them have been made public. Others he had just told us as a, a family, and I put all that in the book. Danny, um, I, I, this is uh, a broad question, but how would you describe your father to someone who never met him but only saw him on TV? Yeah, the thing that most people don't know about my father was that he was just a really great people person. And he was that way with people across all different spectrums of life. He was able to relate with and motivate and bring together the poor inner city black kids that were dominating college basketball at that time, like no other coach. Uh, he was able to relate with and get along with and had a great relationship with his fellow coaches and colleagues, which many coaches couldn't. And then he also was able to relate with the boosters and others that were involved in uh, uh, the big part of their program and so forth. He was a, he just understood how people were. He would fight with people. He, he understood uh, when to just let them give their speech. A, a perfect example would be you put him in a bar, you let him tell stories about um, basketball and, and, and his career, and he'll be the happiest guy on earth. He's told, we've seen him where he's been in the bar and a fan will come up to him and say, Coach, why didn't you get the ball more to Larry Johnson? And, <laughs> and he would have done better. You might have won that game. And my dad will sit there and say, is that right? That's a great point. The guy will go home and tell his girlfriend and he told Coach Tark what to do and take credit for it. There were a lot of people, let's, let's face it, who diminished your father as a coach, who said, oh, he was one of these guys who just rolled out the ball. But <laughs> that was, of course, far from the case. Sure. When my dad first started his career, he was a zone coach, a one-two-two zone. And they, in his third year at Long Beach, they were Division One, Two before he got there. So in three years as a Division One coach, he takes Long Beach within two points of upsetting UCLA in the instant trade tournament during their seven-year run of the national championships. Closest game they ever had. John Wooden, after the game, and several of their players said it was the best zone defense he'd ever seen. They'd never been up against a defense like that before. Then he goes to UNLV. Doesn't have the big players, but he has a really uh, quick athletic player. And he switches to a pressure court man-to-man defense and races the ball up the court. And they become the best defensive full-court team in the country. Then the years they win the national championship, they're a half-court pressure defense with the Amoeba. And many people say was the Amoeba is the greatest zone uh, that was played during that time. And uh, 
So he was able to adapt with his players, and he was a great, great, great defensive coach. Coach K wrote the uh, preface to the book, and he said that my father is one of the greatest defensive coaches in the history of college basketball. Again, we're speaking with Danny Tarkanian. And Danny, of course, though, when, when people think about your dad, it's almost impossible to separate him from his fights with the NCAA. And there was a time at which it seemed he was the NCAA's primary target. They went after him as we've already established, uh, time and again for years. What was the root of the conflict between your father and the NCAA? That's a great point. I, I put that in the book. Uh, you know, they, the NCAA had an official investigation on my father's team, 16 of his 31 years of coach, more than half the time. And it all started when in the early, late 60s, early 70s, college basketball wasn't tremendously popular. They weren't selling out term, NCAA tournament games. They weren't getting high ratings on TV. So the NCAA protected the programs that were real popular, the UCLA, the Kentucky. My father was at Long Beach State. He wrote some articles saying, you know, the NCAA won't go after the big boys. They're going after the small schools like Western Kentucky. He goes, University of Kentucky breaks more rules in one day than Western Kentucky does in a year. Why go after them? Well, the NCAA got upset. You know, here's this young coach nobody knows about. They smarten off to the NCAA. So they wrote a letter to the league commissioner saying, who does Tark think Long Beach is? One of the big boys, we can come after him. And they end up putting Long Beach on probation. Now, if my dad uh, had to do it over again, he would have thanked them for putting him on probation, made friends with them, and kept them as a, a friend as opposed to an enemy. But he just he went after him. He didn't back down from him. And at UNLV, he had fired an assistant coach who um, went to the NCAA and made up a lie saying that uh, – Tarkanian and some of the other coaches were talking about planning drugs and a prostitute with an NCAA investigator, and it infuriated the NCAA. There's documentation of memos and uh, letters that were sent between them saying, we got to get Tark, we got to run him out of coaching because of all these things that he, he was going to plant drugs and, and so forth. And anyways, it created just a horrendous adversarial relationship, and my father didn't back down in Iota. He's an Armenian heritage. He knows how to persevere, as most Armenians do, and it was a never-ending battle until the NCAA finally got him and forced him out at UNLV. We're speaking with Danny Tarkanian about his new book about his father, Rebel with a Cause, the true story of Jerry Tarkanian, one of the most legendary coaches in the annals of college basketball, of course, a Hall of Famer. And Danny, before we let you go, um, I would be remiss if I did not ask you what your father would think about the current state of um, the NCAA, of its relationship with college athletes. So much has changed. The world we see now seems to be turning towards uh, a place uh, that your father was saying for a long time we should be at or we should be getting to. And and although he's no longer with us, does it feel like, in a way, he's winning? Well, what he did was he exposed the NCAA's faults and, and, and what their actions back in the uh, early 70s. And People thought he was just saying it because he had been put on probation. Now other people are experiencing the same things and realizing it's right. The NCAA still is not a fair organization, but most importantly, their rules aren't fair. Their, their rule book, my dad always said, you need to put an, uh, an organization like the NCAA and have five to ten rules to stop people from breaking major violations. Instead, you got a rule book full of stupid and silly violations, many of which they found you to be guilty of and then changed later and made them legal because it was so ridiculous. I think the best best thing my father did in correcting the NCAA was to try to make it more fair for people to play uh, intercollegiate sports without um, basically um, treating the, the kids that are playing as second-class kids. These kids don't have any money 
1960 on, basketball's been dominated by inner-city poor black kids that don't have the money to pay for extra things to call it, such as going on a date or going to the movies with a girlfriend or even going out to lunch. Um, my father felt that was wrong, that those kids should be treated the same as every other college student. He stood up for them, and that was part of his battles with the NC2A. Danny Tarkanian's new book is Rebel with a Cause, the true story of Jerry Tarkanian, his father. It's a fascinating uh, a story about one of the most uh, compelling coaches, not just in basketball, but in sports, period. Danny, thanks so much for joining us here on The Sporting Life. Well, thank you. And if you'd like to get the book, it's on Amazon.com. And you can either punch in my name or Rebel with the Cause and you'll find it. Thank you so much for having me on. Thanks for having joined us. I'm Jeremy Schapp, and this has been The Sporting Life on ESPN Radio. We're on every Saturday and every Sunday morning at 6 Eastern Time.